The rest of us, let's turn to John chapter 12, if you would. John chapter 12. And I want us to read verse 16 as we start this morning. This will not be the only passage of Scripture we will deal with, but uh, it is the starting point for this morning's message. And uh, if you were here in Sunday school, Andrew gave you the story of the triumphal entry, the events that transpired on that day. And verse 16 of John chapter 12 says, These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. This, this morning, I'd like to speak about prophecy. The idea of prophecy is part of every great story and every not-so-great story. Uh, if someone is going to develop uh, some great work, even of fiction, normally Somewhere in that book, they're going to use the element or device uh, of prophecy. And uh, because what it does is nothing makes something so believable as saying, the prophet said, and now it's happening. And uh, that doesn't mean every book or every reference to prophecy outside the Bible is evil. It's just a wonderful, uh, 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 in, in the writing, it, what it simply does is it bends our minds to walk into the world of the writer. Now, that was never God's intent when he gave prophecies in the Scripture. You see, God's intent when he gave prophecies in the Scripture, and just by the way, hold your Bible up, look at it. 20% of this Bible was prophecy when it was written down. One-fifth of your Bible was prophecy, 20 out of every 100 pages, was prophetic, had not happened yet when it was written down. That ought to just go... It, uh, it, it ought to put you out on overload. It's, it... It is a, uh, far beyond, and we have many, many types of prophets in our world today. Uh, if half of those Wall Street prophets, uh, they call them stockbrokers and traders and all of those things, if half of them knew one quarter of what they're, one-tenth of what they thought they knew, uh, they wouldn't be working on Wall Street. They'd be retired on an island in Bermuda somewhere, Right? Uh, or uh, they'd be, uh, be, be careful when someone wants to sell you knowledge that will make you a million dollars. You know why? Because if they really had it, they would use it for themselves. And they wouldn't tell you about it because once everybody else has it, then it doesn't work anymore. And, and so uh, be, be very careful of those things. And, and it, it's fine to read uh, books that are written and made up and things, as long as we understand 
This is not the gospel. This is not from the Bible. But when it comes to the Bible, why do we have such a hard time believing in the prophecies? Why do all the commentaries and, and people nothing but argue? If you were to meet a Jewish person of the Jewish tradition uh, of the faith that has developed among the Jewish people since the days of Jesus Christ, and you were to open your Bible to Isaiah 53 and say, this talks about Jesus. And they'd say, no, it doesn't. It talks about the state of Israel, the nation of Israel. And, and if you'd open your Bible to Psalm 22 and said, how could you get a more, uh, uh, a, a, a more positive identification, a, a, a complete, more complete description of Jesus suffering on the cross than was penned by David a thousand years before Jesus was born. And he'll say, no, that's not talking about the Messiah. The Messiah didn't come to suffer. He, he came to be the king. And yet we would agree 100%. Jesus did come to be the king. Amen. Why do people argue about the prophecy in the Bible? Well, we're going to find out as we go through this this morning that I could lay down every prophecy in this book called the Bible and the fulfillment of it. There's a fellow that actually did this with the life of Jesus, the, the, the birth in Bethlehem uh, to the resurrection and every Bible prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. And then he put it into a computer and came up with the mathematical probability that one person could fulfill all of these prophecies by chance and or design. And the number was so long that you could not write it out on a sheet of paper. One in ten gazillion. I know gazillion's not a number, but you, you get the point. I mean, there are so many zeros after the one that you couldn't even begin to comprehend it. Shouldn't that prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus is who he said he is? And of course, we must use present tense when we talk about Jesus. Even though the words he spoke is recorded in the Gospel of John, these events are nearly 2,000 years past. Jesus is still present tense. Amen? He always was. He, yeah, well, let's, let's get this right. He always was, is. He is, is, and always will be, is. And uh, someone says, that's not grammatically correct, but it is theologically accurate, which takes precedence over grammar. Amen? And so, uh, as we describe Jesus and as we understand this, we look at the events of today, the triumphal entry. And I want us to Understand, verse 16 here, this is the context. These things understood not his disciples. The disciples were fulfilling the prophecies that were there. They were doing the very things that were written. But they didn't get it. Until after Jesus was glorified, then they turned around and they looked. 
And they said, wow. Zechariah wrote of that 500 years before Jesus was born, before we were born. 500 years of history had elapsed since Zechariah penned the words that we're going to look at. And you can be turning there, Zechariah chapter 9, if you would. And uh, we look at these things and the disciples... Understood not at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they these things that were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. Let's go to the book of Zechariah. Now, you have to know your books of the Bible to find Zechariah, but if you go to Malachi and start heading back, you'll find it very quickly. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 And rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation, lowly in riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And so if we uh, read the context of Zechariah, Zechariah was prophesying just a few weeks Ago in our Sunday school time, we were talking about the rebuilding of the temple and how that uh, uh, Zerubbabel and, and and those with him came up and they began rebuilding the temple and they were stopped. And then the prophets came. Zechariah was one of those prophets. Haggai was the other one. And, and they said, get rebuilding the temple. Build and prosper. God is going, not going to bless you until you Rebuild the temple. And so they began rebuilding. They couldn't stop them. And Zechariah was prophesying, but here we have this verse. And how do we know that this verse is talking about Jesus riding the donkey through the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem? Because the Bible says so. You see, prophecy is a place where lots of people get really, really Messed up. Prophecy is best understood after it's fulfilled. Anybody want to argue that point? I mean, it's easy once it was all done. The disciples were familiar, uh, apparently, with the writings of Zechariah because it says after he was glorified, they remembered. All of a sudden, the scripture came back to them. Does the Do you think the Holy Spirit might have had something to do with that? Hello? Go like this? Yeah, yeah, he did. That's part of the Holy Spirit's job. He says, he will teach you things about me. Jesus told the disciples that on the way to Gethsemane. You see, the Holy Spirit is not a feel-good pill. The Holy Spirit is not out there to give you everything you want. The Holy Spirit is there to help you understand this book called the Bible and learn about Jesus. Amen? That wasn't much of an amen. Could we try that again? You see, it's easy for us today to read this and say, Wow! 500 years before Jesus was born, those words were written. And the disciples and Jesus fulfilled them completely. And yet, that is only 
one event in one day of the 33 and a half year ministry and life of Jesus on this earth, literally hundreds of prophecies were all fulfilled. Someone could say, well, Jesus had read Zechariah and he went through and he, he made that uh, uh, prophecy there come true and told his disciples. Well, how did they get the crowds? How did they do that? How did they manipulate the entire population of Jerusalem to come out and praise Him and glorify Him on that day? How did they do that? Well, maybe God had a little hand in that. You see, when authors put prophecy in their books, it's really easy to make everything work out because they're the author. Right? Do you, you understand what I'm saying? I mean, as an author is writing a book and he wants to use the device of prophecy to further the aims and, and the storyline of his book, the believability of, of the story, he, he has total control. He is a, uh, the proper term is demigod. He is a little god able to make all of the details and all of the things happen the way they should. Uh, my family and I, we have a, a, a little phrase that we joke about very often. They'll say, how in the world did he survive that, Dad? I said, very easy. He had good script writers. And as you're watching a movie or, or, or something there and you see the story, wow, how come the Lone Ranger never gets shot in the back? He's got good script writers. Uh, it would really ruin the story if some dirty skunk stuck up and shot the Lone Ranger in the back. Now, wouldn't it? I mean, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't be the same after that. But we're not talking about a story concocted by men. We're talking about a living history recorded by men as God gave them utterance to record it. And some of that history was written... Before it happened. That's what makes it prophecy. Amen. Now, I want you to turn with me to the book of Daniel, if you would. In chapter 9, and we're going back in time from Zechariah, probably uh, in the neighborhood of about 50 years. Daniel was there for the uh, uh, through the reign of the Babylonian kings and into the Persian kings. And uh, as Daniel was there in Babylon and in the reign of, of, of the, the Persian kings, he was given a prophecy here. And we look in chapter 9, verse 24, it says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. <coughs> so here is uh, Gabriel giving Daniel this prophecy. He says, 
There are 70 weeks of history left for the nation of Israel. And in those 70 weeks, we're going to finish transgression, finish the history of sin, make an end of sins, make a reconciliation for iniquity or all sins, bring bring in everlasting righteousness or eternal salvation, seal up the vision and prophecy to finish all of the things prophesied and to anoint the most holy, the, the beginning of what we would call the millennial reign of Christ. All of those things are going to happen in 70 weeks. You say, no, wait a minute. It's been a lot longer than 70 weeks. Well, you have to understand this is a prophecy. And let's read on. Verse 25, know, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. And the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood. Unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abomination, he shall make it desolate even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, what we have here is the history of Israel in three verses. We need to understand that, of course, when the word weak here is used, it's used as groups of prophetic weeks. That uh, this last week, we understand that. It's divided into two periods. The book of Revelation is very clear. Other passages in Daniel, that each day of the week is a year. So what we have here is the uh, 69 weeks of years. And that works out to 173,880 days. Now, according to Sir Robert Anderson, he was a Bible scholar of the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was often said that when uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was writing his uh, fictitious stories of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Robert Anderson was actually at Scotland Yard solving the crimes. That's what he was. He was a professional detective, and when he retired... He devoted the remainder of his life to the study of this book called the Bible. He used the laws of evidence that he had learned as a police officer to evaluate the truthfulness and the veracity of things in the Bible. And he went through history. And uh, it's quite a book. It's about uh, 200 pages uh, that he wrote about this prophecy here. And he took the day that Jerusalem was set free and established as its own city once again. That wasn't when the, the temple was rebuilt or when the wall was rebuilt. It was years later. 
under the Persian kings, Jerusalem was finally given its freedom. And from that day to the day Jesus rode the donkey through the gate of the city of Jerusalem, according to Sir Robert Anderson, was 173,880 days. Exactly what the Bible said. You take 69 times 7 because each day is a year, and then you multiply that uh, by the number of days in the Jewish calendar year, which is 360, and you get 173,000 to the exact day. I'll tell you what, I'm not going to argue with Mr. Anderson, are you? But it says, until Messiah the Prince... Was not Jesus presented as the prince as he rode through that city gate? We'll, we'll look at the rest of uh, John and Luke's here in just a minute. But I want us to go one more place in the Bible. We're going to go back about 70 years before this. And we're going to go to the book of Ezekiel. And chapter 44. And, and the, the last eight chapters of the book of Ezekiel, nine chapters are dealing with the temple that is to be rebuilt. Ezekiel was an eyewitness to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem. He was there when everything was finally destroyed. And the last parts of his prophecy talk about a temple that is to be rebuilt, one that has not been built yet. Because the temple that was rebuilt under Zerubbabel does not match the description in the book of Ezekiel at all. And so, uh, some say, oh, it's just all figurative, it's never going to come to reality. But why would God give such incredible detail if it was just supposed to be figurative and never become to reality? Uh, I believe that Ezekiel's temple is the temple that's going to be rebuilt during the Millennial Kingdom in the city of Jerusalem. And as he is describing this in chapter 44, there's just an interesting little passage that we'll bring out. Verse 1, Then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looketh toward the east, and it was shut. Then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord... The God of Israel hath entered in by it, therefore it shall be shut. It is for the prince. The prince, he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate and shall go, away, go out by the way of the same. Now, our understanding of the events, the historical events on Palm Sunday, as it's been known uh, come to be called, or the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem was through the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. It was in the medieval times, as the uh, world of Islam began to dominate that part of the world, and they began to try to understand some of the prophecies that the Jewish people had talked about their king coming through that eastern gate, and so they said, we're going to solve this problem. And they sealed up the gate. Today, the eastern gate is bricked up. 
And then, in order to make sure that no Jewish king would come through that gate, they planted a cemetery in front of it. Because you have to understand, to go through a cemetery would be to become unclean. And if you were going to dig up the ground and open the gate, you would necessarily become unclean. So they solved the problem. The king will never come in that gate. There's a cemetery there. He can't move it without becoming unclean, and that would be below his dignity. We, we've got the problem solved. Well, if they'd only read a book of Ezekiel, they would understand that the gate was supposed to be shut because the king's already been through it. Amen. How do you come up with these things? You actually have the religion of Islam bowing at the knees of the prophecy of Scripture and fulfilling them to the very tiniest letter that is written thereof. Let me ask you a question. Does that do something for you as a Christian to see these prophecies written hundreds and hundreds of years before they came into being? And then having the testimony of the disciples that with their hands literally fulfilled these prophecies, saying, wow, we had no clue what we were doing. Until we turned around. I loved Andrew's introduction to I survey the wondrous cross. Till they surveyed the situation. They took a full accounting and all of a sudden the scriptures came back to them and they understood that they had fulfilled the Scriptures. And this is only one event on one day. I was looking through my notes and I have 15 weeks of lessons just dealing with the prophecies of Christ in the Bible. Uh, Wow, I wonder if I could squeeze all those into one sermon. No, no, we'll just put that away and we'll stick with the, uh, the subject today. But we'll get those out again, I am sure. But I, I want you now to turn back with me, if you would, to the book of John, where we started. John chapter 12. And Matthew, as was his case, we won't turn there, said that thus it might be fulfilled. Uh, many times, several times in the book of Matthew, he said that these things were done that it might be fulfilled. That the scriptures were written and Matthew painted a beautiful picture of that. And we, and, and we have these things here and... The, uh, the Bible tells us that the people praised him and worshipped him. Verse 19, I love this. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. Now the Pharisees, they were really the most unfortunate of the of the groups here that had arraigned themselves in opposition to Jesus. Uh, the Pharisees were basically in control of the local synagogues, most of them through the land of Egypt. They, I mean Israel, excuse me. And uh, they, 
were mostly in charge of the synagogues. The people listened to the Pharisees. They were the closest of all to the Bible. But if you remember the teachings of Jesus, they were still so far away that righteousness was well beyond their grasp. You had the Sadducees that ran the temple. They were the priests. And if you remember about the Sadducees, they didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in nothing. They're kind of like the old... uh, uh, Unitarian Church. That's what happened to the Congregational Churches of the Revolution. They became Unitarians. And what's a Unitarian believe in? Nothing. They don't believe in God the Son. They don't believe in God the Holy Spirit. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in, in divine revelation. They, oh, but we believe in God. Okay. Uh, read James chapter 1. So does the devil. Uh... What kind of God is it that has no power, no form, no connection, no word, no prophecy, no, not much of a God, not my God? How about you? You see, they were there and they were just looking between themselves. And I I can't help but believe that the Lord did Enjoy that moment just a little bit as these Pharisees. The whole world is following him. We've, we've lost. We can't do nothing. We can't stop this guy at all. Well, how in the world could they? He is God. Amen. And so, we turn to the book of Luke. And Luke gives us a little further indication of what was going on there. Luke chapter 19. And we'll start here. In uh, verse 37, And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. So, if if you could imagine the cacophony of noise. Jerusalem, they tell us, Passover week would swell from somewhere around 600,000 people who normally lived there, a large city in that day, to two and a half million people. Four times its size. There was not a corner of Jerusalem that was not crowded with people that were coming that on Passover they would offer over 100,000 lambs in one day for the Passover sacrifice. All of that was coming, and as Jesus was coming over that last crest of the hill and down into the city of Jerusalem, everything came together and the entire multitude began praising Him and 
the streets of Jerusalem rang with the sound. And while all of that was going on, Hosanna to the son of David, there were some Pharisees that were there, close to Jesus as he was riding on the back, sitting on the back of the mother donkey, and his feet were upon the baby donkey as a moving throne down the, that walkway into the city of Jerusalem. And they said, Master, rebuke your disciples. You know that they're wrong. They were giving praise to Jesus that belonged only to God. They were worshiping Him as the God of the Old Testament, as the fulfillment of all the Bible prophecies. Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, Luke has it recorded here saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Who could have any say as to what goes on in heaven but God himself? And they looked at Jesus and they said, This isn't true. Rebuke your disciples. And how many of you remember, I'm sure Andrew covered this in Sunday school. What did they say? Look at it. Let's, let's read it very carefully here. Verse 40. And he, Jesus, answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Jesus said, I am to be worshipped today for who I am. And by the way, that is the name of Jehovah. The, the word Jehovah in the Hebrew language simply means I am. And if you'll listen very closely, you will hear that phrase repeated often, blasphemously, by different people and, and things uh, all through uh, the Star Wars thing. I don't read that stuff. I just heard a few little phrases, but it's all, oh, he has no father. He just is. It's blasphemously applying to the writings of men and made-up fantasy that's not even good. Things that belong to the Bible. The world yearns for its own God. They are working on a computer chip. They've, I don't think they've made a whole lot of progress but our modern computer chips that are so incredibly fast work on electronic impulse. They're working on one that works on light impulse. And you know what they call it? You see, what we have in our computers now is RAM. Random access memory. What they are trying to do with this fiber optic or light uh, chip is having all that information circulating inside the chip at the speed of light, just like the hard drive. And its acronym is Instant Access Memory. Spell it. I am. 
I, instant access memory. I am. They're not joking, my friends. People were trying so hard to subvert the truth that is in this book called the Bible. And as those Pharisees were literally wrenching in their innards and and just convulsing at the praise that was given to Jesus, Jesus said, listen, if these would be quiet, creation itself, which has no voice, would give voice to who I am. Oh, they had had it. They, they couldn't stand it anymore. They, they, were, they were just going mad with everything that was happening to them. But I want you to stay here in the book of Luke, chapter 19, and look at verse 41 with me. We're going to read a few verses here. And when he was come near, he beheld the city. What's those next two words? Let's try it again. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept. Now, you have 70,000 people. Could have been well in the hundreds of thousands. Who knows? As all of these people... Uh, uh, at least well over uh, a million and a half people crowding into Jerusalem for Passover. And Jesus was coming in with the main group of that on Sunday before the week that the Passover was to begin. And the city of Jerusalem was a cacophony of noise. The, The shouts and praises were echoing. The screams of the Pharisees to Jesus to tell him to shut up was actually heard by the disciples and those in the immediate area, as was Jesus' answer was. Jesus wasn't looking at them with clenched teeth and saying, if there's... He was enunciating those words that could be heard through the noise. And yet, as they turned that final corner there and the whole city of Jerusalem laid out, Jesus stopped and wept while they were praising, while they were jumping up and down and screaming hallelujahs and hosanna to the highest love. The Pharisees sitting there going, ah! And Jesus was weeping. Why was he weeping? Well, let's... Actually, Jesus is going to utter some prophecy of his own here. Saying, verse 42... If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. But now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round about and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee that they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation." These words would be accomplished by the army of the Roman general Titus in 70 A.D. He would circle the city of Jerusalem and he offered peace. Historians tell us as the emissary of Titus came into the city of Jerusalem, the siege had been laid and he said, I will spare the temple and I will spare the people in the city if you will surrender. 
Well, these very same Sadducees, the priests in the temple and the Pharisees were having a knife fight on the steps of the temple because they were disagreeing over how things ought to be conducted in the temple. And when the Roman emissary came into the city, they told him, we got our own issues to fight about. You take a hike. And so insulted was he that he ordered his soldiers, he says, don't leave anybody alive. He had still tried to save the temple, but somebody had thrown a torch through one of the windows into the complex. It caught on fire. The gold began to melt and seep through the paving stones of the temple. And when the soldiers saw that, they were allowed, their pay was the plunder of their victories. After everybody was dead, those soldiers spent the rest of their efforts ripping those stones, some of them several tons each, off of one another and scraping the gold off of those stones and putting it in their purses. And when they left, every word Jesus said was completely fulfilled as it is to this day. You see, prophecy is an incredible thing. Now, what we've done here is actually gone through the introduction, but I promise you the sermon will be short, all right? I want to ask you a question. We looked at this story today. Andrew described it, I'm sure, much better in the Sunday school time. And Jesus did not weep over the city of Jerusalem for the pain and suffering that he would endure. He wept over it because people would not believe on him. By 70 A.D., there was a great many Jewish Christians, but most of them had been driven out of Jerusalem. The believers in Jesus by a vast majority, were no longer in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was very small at this time because of the persecution of the Jewish people against their own people who believed in Jesus. You see, if we will take a moment and understand something, The disciples didn't understand and comprehend fully the prophecy until after all things were fulfilled. We have many prophecies we're still waiting on to be fulfilled. Amen? And you can turn on the Christian radio and television. You can buy books and books and books and books and books. Could I challenge you the best way to deal with prophecy? If you'd like to find yourself in this story today is be like the disciples. Obedient to the daily commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not worrying about all of the things that could happen in the future. Not comprehending even that they, with their very hands and deeds, were fulfilling these prophecies. They were being obedient to Jesus Christ. Could I challenge you? They didn't need the prophecies to believe in Jesus Christ. They already did. You see, there are people out there who think if they can prove that all these prophecies came to happen as the Bible says, 
that you would have no choice but to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. I want to tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. For without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. You must make a choice to believe in Jesus. And by the way, that choice... To believe in Jesus demands obedience to Jesus. It demands a change in the way we live, in the way we think, in the way we walk, in the way we talk, in the way we dress, in the way we think. Uh, the Bible describes that as uh, being rooted and grounded in love. You knew I was going to get that in there somewhere. Amen? And once you're there, you're built up in Him. Amen? You're established in the faith. Are you willing to believe the fulfillment of the prophecies enough to show up at prayer meeting tonight? Bible study on Thursday night. To go... Track passing during the week. Here's a tough one. To esteem His goodness greater than your personal suffering. How many of you complained about something this week? My hand's up. You can put yours up too. No use lying in church. God knows. Uh, every one of us did. Now, didn't we? You know, the reason we complain, the reason we get discouraged, and the reason we despair, the reason we are frustrated with life is because God isn't behaving the way we think He should. Excuse me? Who gave you the right to judge God? We, we need to be like the disciples in the story. Didn't it seem ridiculous? Jesus told him, I want you guys to go over and get a donkey and a baby donkey tied next to her. Okay. Uh, no, you're going to go there. If anybody says anything, you tell them the Lord has need of them and they'll send them. Okay, that makes a whole lot of sense. They just did it. And then they took off their own outer garments and laid them over to, to make a covering so that Jesus would not sit on the very beast that they were there, but sit on the cloth on top of them. And people took their clothes and when they, uh, their, their outer, like, suit coat or long robe and laid it on the ground and others chopped down the palm leaves and, and made a carpet so there'd be no dust on the road going into the city of Jerusalem. That was not without precedent. That had been done on many occasions. Sometimes it was ordered by the Roman general if he wanted to feel especially honored. He would make people do that, not only in city Jerusalem. It was just something that was done to keep the dust and everything down. That, that's the way it ought to be. But the disciples willingly did that without even understanding what they're doing. Could I challenge you, that kind of faith is the kind of faith that will get you through today and tomorrow and the next day. That's the kind of faith that will ensure that you have let go of the world and trusted Jesus as your only Savior. 
You see, the disciples didn't need the prophecies. They already believed on Jesus. But when it was all said and done, here's what they were doing. See here? It said so in the Bible 500 years before Jesus was done. How can you argue with that? Well, the only way you can argue with it is say, I don't believe. I would pray that we wouldn't have one here in this auditorium this morning that would join with the Pharisees. But that we would humbly beseech the Lord. Will you make me as the disciples? I don't have to understand everything. I don't even have to enjoy everything. But I have to trust God with everything. And I have to obey Him first before anything else. God will bless in your life. You know how He'll bless? He'll make you just like the disciples. That when it's all said and done and we're over on the other side, you'll be able to tell the assembled group there in heaven. Just like the Bible said, he did it in my life. That's casting your crowns before his feet. That is giving him the glory for the things that he did. Let me tell you something. If you're there, you're going to want to have something. You're going to want to have your story to tell. Guess what? You don't have to invent prophecy. It's already here. Jesus prayed and as he was on the way to Gethsemane, not only for those, but for those that believe on me through their word. Hey, Jesus was praying for us on his way to Gethsemane in John chapter 17. I've got the prophecy but you see, I already believed. And that's why the prophecy makes sense. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would encourage us.